Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey friends, and welcome back for season three of Quit Your Day Job. I am your host, Alicia Fernandez-Miranda. In this podcast, you'll learn all about the fascinating jobs that people do, some that you might never have even heard of, as you contemplate your own personal and professional future. I started this podcast because I've always been fascinated by jobs. I even quit my own day job to spend a year as an intern. You can read all about it in my new book, My What If Year. It comes out on February 7th, and you can pre-order it right now, everywhere books are sold, or head over to my website, aliciafmiranda.com, for more information. Go ahead. I'll wait. In these times of quiet quitting and great resignations and loud quitting or whatever, I think more people than ever want to follow their passions. Everyone on this podcast has, and I encourage you to do the same. Hello, my lovely listeners. Today, I am so happy to bring you an interview with Harry Blaine. Harry is a London-based art dealer who works in modern and contemporary painting and sculpture. He's been part of the art world since the 90s. Currently working under the banner of Blaine Art, Harry's former galleries include Haunch of Venison and Blaine Southern. Harry is also the founder of Sedition, a digital art platform that works to connect creators with art lovers. Harry and I have been friends since the early 2000s. I met him when I was in graduate school, and he was this, like, super glamorous art dealer and gallery owner, and we've stayed friends ever since. And when I wanted to intern in the art world, he was the first person that I reached out to. So I also interned with Harry. You can read all about it in my What If Year, and I'm currently working with him at Blaine Art. Also, the lovely folks at Sedition are partners of my upcoming book tour. All right, everybody. And welcome to Quit Your Day Job. I have an incredible interview for you today. This is going to air, I think, shortly before my book is going to come out. And you'll learn a bit more about this man in my book as well. It is the illustrious, the infamous, the brilliant Harry Blaine. Harry, thank you for coming on the podcast today. Good morning. Thanks for having me. And with introductions like that, I should do more often. It's great. We'll tr- we'll try to keep we'll try to keep it up, <laughs> but it's all very very true. So for readers or soon to be readers of my book, I interned with Harry at Blaine Art. He very kindly took me on with like zero experience in the art world, um, and we have been working together ever since, which is a joy. And Harry's job is just extremely fascinating, and so I'm really excited to dig into it with you today. But before we do that, I have a couple questions for you. Now, this season I've been doing like a this or that, but actually I wanted to give you a pop quiz. So five pop quiz questions. First answer that comes to your head. No wrong answers, I would say, generally speaking. Are you ready? As I ever will be. Thank you. <laughs> Deep breaths. Okay. Question one, okay. what is your favorite spot to go see some art? Favorite spot? The Tate. Modern or Britain? Doesn't matter. They're both fantastic. 
So good. We just went to see the Kusama exhibition with the kids in London last week. And of course, Theo almost fell in the water because that's just, I think, yeah. what, what happens there. We we asked the guy how many people fall, have fallen into the water. And he said, we stopped counting after the first dozen. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the question is how many people have drowned in the water. That would be Well, it. yeah, it's pretty, I think it's pretty shallow. That would be quite a quite an effort. But I love I love the Tate too. It's my favorite. Good answer. So far, so good. It's, it's, a real, it's really refreshing. It's a kind of it's a great palate cleanser. And um, there's so much there's so much around. There's so much visual sort of material and work that you sort of encounter every day that actually to go somewhere, whether it's the courthold, the National Gallery, the Tate, you know, any of these fantastic institutions and actually see great art, great art, you know, that really speaks to you is a real palate cleanser. It's really refreshing. And as a as an art dealer, I think it's uh, it's something that lifts you back to this is why I'm doing it. This is this is what it's all about. That's a, a fantastic feeling. I love that. That's beautiful. Look at your art. You're acing this already, Harry. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Question two. What is the best of the festivals on the festival circuit? Probably the Christmas fair in Berlin, but I don't think that's the kind of uh, festival you're talking about. When you say festival, you uh, you mean art, basil, art freeze, okay. uh, you know, the, the ones one would think them, of. As, it's interesting you turn them as festivals because I think they've largely become that, you know. Art fairs were traditionally a sort of trade platform and an answer uh, in response to the auction houses growing dominance. So it was a way of the galleries coming together and creating a moment where collectors could all come together. And there was a, a sort of need to respond to the artwork in short time. So in an auction, you've got you've got a pressure position where somebody has to buy something, otherwise they miss it. Generally, in you know, galleries, it's a more considered process. Mm. And art fairs, I think galleries are similar opportunity because there were significant amounts of collectors and parties interested in the work. So if you didn't respond to the work that you were being offered by a gallery or going through the fairs, then it's likely another collector would buy it ahead of you. So that was the original idea of these fairs to bring the galleries together as a cohesive position allow collectors to see a large number of works by the top galleries in the world but they have become festivals you know they've become extraordinary social gatherings with incredible events around them and parties and dinners and and spectacles in their own right in fact you know some of them like art bars or miami the parties are as famous as the the art fair itself so um, i think there's something like 350 odd fairs these days. I don't quit me. Oh, it may God. be more than that. But it's impossible, therefore, to go to every single one of them. So you have these sort of major moments, if you like, and the Art Basel brand has become one of the strongest and most important. And they've they've gone from Art Basel, which is Switzerland, to Art Basel Miami, which is a, an anachronism, but, you know, it's Art Basel <laughs> Miami. And you've got Art Basel Hong Kong. And, you know, so they've they've developed it and kept the quality there. So that is probably one of the best fairs you can go to. Freeze has been another one, another great success story. If you look at Art Basel, in fact, have just taken over FIAC, uh, FIAC uh, in Paris. So it's now, I can't remember the, the entire, the name for it, but it's Art Basel Paris for all intents and purposes. Right. Um, 
and those are those are great moments to go to because you do get the world's you know most important dealers get to see some incredible artworks and obviously meet uh, a lot of similarly focused people who is your the artist that's kind of on your mind at the moment as maybe being slightly underrated so someone that you think is amazing but maybe not a lot of people recognize or know um, well, there's this chap called Picasso who um, I think, uh, you know. I'm not sure I've heard of him before. <laughs> he has something. There are actually so many. When you start looking around at what has been happening, there are there are artists who have made an ex- extraordinary contribution to contemporary art landscape, many of them for decades. And perhaps that recognition of what they've done has ebbed slightly as the newer shinier you know most recent artist has grabbed everybody's attention so there will always be if you're looking at it uh, from a historic point of view and an aesthetic point of view there will always be those positions which you can go back to and go that is an extraordinarily uh, extraordinary artist and actually the values attributed to those works at the moment probably don't make sense you know they should probably be higher so it's a it's a really good opportunity to look at some key works from those artists and bring them to the collection. Obviously, if that fits your criteria of what you're looking at. Right. So I don't think I could give a single name, but there's there's a number, uh, quite a significant number. Fair enough. And is that something you look for? So maybe someone who's been overlooked for a while that's coming back, if you're looking at a piece that you want to rep or perhaps bring in and then to sell? I think that's if you're looking at it from a uh, from a commercial or value point of view, then it makes sense to look at it like that. I think if you're um, if you're looking at it from a collecting point of view, there are moments where where artists sort of perhaps the market becomes a little throppy for them. It becomes mm. there's so much interest, so much demand that the the prices sort of move away from perhaps a normality. And in those situations, it's probably better just to sit back because it all settles down. This isn't a race in the long run. You know, art history has its own positions and its own kind of recognitions. And it's better to perhaps focus on one or two other areas of the collection that you might want where there isn't the same intensity of focus Mm. um, so that you can you can still get those key works. Because at the end of the day, it's about it's about really obtaining the best possible works you can by the artists that you're interested in. And it's always about those top works that you can bring to a collection. I love that. Okay, Harry. And finally, what is the biggest misconception or lie about yourself that you've ever read or seen as a person who is sometimes talked about and written about in the news? I guess the the, the most common misconception it's not it's nothing very big i've never tried to correct it is that i'm constantly referred to as born in australia i wasn't i was born in england as ex-stockbroker which i wasn't i was never a stockbroker but you know in a way it creates part of the the whole i guess background to what people want to believe rather than the reality (laughs) can you do an australian accent uh oh yeah mom it's real beautiful (laughs) so now i see where it comes from that's great. Well, I, I did I did live in Australia for uh, um, about five years when I when I was about five. I think maybe that's where it comes from. And my brother was born there, so perhaps that's the confusion. Some truth in it. Some truth in it. Amazing. Yeah. 
Oh, well, you survived the fast, uh, fast rapid dash around, Harry. Well done. That was the hardest part, actually, of this whole thing. So not to worry. The rest is easy peasy. I'll take your word for it. All right. <laughs> we, can, we can compare notes later. So I think that this idea of being an art dealer is something that has a lot of images for people that are not at all connected to the field. Certainly for me, before we started working together, it was like fur coat, diamonds, got the glasses, walking into Sotheby's or a gallery, like tilting my head to one side and offering an opinion about something. I now know it's a lot more than that. But to start out, how would you describe your job to someone who doesn't know anything about what it means to be an art dealer? It's really interesting. In the, there was a program on uh, British TV called AdFab, uh, AdFab I think it is, which had a fantastic sketch about them walking into an art gallery. And of course, I think I think the comment, I can't remember who made it at the end of the day, but the comment to the girl on the front desk who was, you know, projecting quite a snooty and elitist air to her was goes, you can drop the attitude, you know, you only work in a shop. <laughs> you know, which, <laughs> which at the end of the day is what a gallery actually is. But people wonder, you know, wonder what you do all day long. You know, they just think that you sit there at a desk and people come in and, and buy a work. That unfortunately is is quite rare. I'd love it to be less <laughs> rare, but um, but there, you know, I think the galleries as a whole are extraordinarily hardworking. You know, they are massively committed to their artists, um, the majority of them. There are the art fairs, which, as we talked about, are relentless. You know, many of these galleries are doing 10, 20 art fairs a year, which means shipping both works and personnel, all your sort of colleagues around the world who then have to stand on a booth for hours a day, normally in some conference hall somewhere, talking to people who for the most part aren't, you know, aren't ever going to buy a work, you know, and hoping to distill it to those one or two collectors or people who are genuinely interested who do want to know about the work with an intent to actually creating a collection and supporting the artist. So there's this enormous infrastructure around um, what we do. And I think the galleries are probably the hardest working if you've got a contemporary program where you're, you know, you're having to look after the artist's work, the artist themselves, make sure that they're fully supported in their practice where you can, make sure the works are presented in the best possible context and the way the artist wants it to be seen. Those are the hardest working people in the market, I feel. The dealers, people who are just dealers, it's a little simpler, but still enormously involved. So when a work, you know, when a collector approaches us perhaps about selling a work, whether it's a Picasso or a Damien Hirst or whatever it might be, there's an enormous amount of research that goes into making sure that that work is what it's supposed to be, that the exhibition history for the work is correct, that the people of provenance or the people who have owned the work are all listed correctly. And then obviously looking at what the value of that work should be. Many people outside of the outside of the market think, well, well how do you value, how do you value an artwork? You know? Yeah. And it's really like anything else, you know, all of these, um, all of these works have, you know, an interest, there's a supply and demand, you know, any market is driven by, by supply and demand and scarcity, you know, for, uh, for the work itself. So in the same way that you can perhaps value a house, 
you can value an artwork if you have the expertise, if you know the market. And that's what it comes down to. The reason people use you is because of the in-depth knowledge, the experience that you have, the understanding of the market, the understanding of the artwork, the understanding of the artist themselves. You know, that is what gives you the ability to value a work and present it to audience or a collector who may be interested with the confidence both from your point of view and hopefully from their point of view that what you're offering them is an amazing opportunity to bring a particular work to their collection so there's a lot of the actual perhaps transaction element of it is a small fraction of what goes on behind the scenes there are there are been you know numerous conversations to confirm all of these details, numerous conversations with the seller, and then numerous conversations with the buyer and bringing the two parties, well, bringing the artwork to the party so that they can view it, engage with it, and make sure that it's something that they really want to to live with, to own. So it's not sitting behind a desk waiting for somebody to walk in. There is a significant amount of background research. Most of it, I would say, therefore, is the research and the admin and then the conversations with the potentially interested parties. We have, uh, we're lucky enough to have a very significant art library, um, which has been built up over many years. And, and it, there are hours and hours spent with these books um, going through all the details and exhibitions. I don't know if that adequately answers it, but it's. Uh, I think it, like no, I think it, it. I think it does because I think that there's a perception of you know what you see in an, maybe from a snippet of an auction or you know what you see when you walk into a gallery, and that's so very different from how the actual job works on a day to day basis. I mean, one thing that's really struck me in the time we've been working together is that you know a large part of it is about the art and the kind of piece, but there, it's also really a people job. It is a job that requires people to trust you. It requires strong relationships because there is so much that is, you know, there there's a lot of objective research, but there's a lot that is subjective. I mean, what do you think are the qualities that you need to be successful in this world that you work in? Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Um, I think you've got to have a passion for it. I think like actually anything, if you really want to be successful, it's got to come from somewhere deep inside you where 
it doesn't matter about putting in all the extra hours and it doesn't matter about the setbacks and it doesn't matter what people say or do or however much else you know works against you it's something that you intrinsically love doing and that pushes you through and allows you to keep going so that sort of tenacity is extraordinarily important um that passion for the work itself i think is extraordinarily important because it's it's got to be about the work at the end of the day it's got to be about the artwork that you're you're considering or working with and of course you know if you're a gallery and working with artists the artists themselves so i think you need to you need to have you've got to be good with people if you're going to be actually selling the works at the end of the day then you need to have communication skills as well to be very successful having said that there are plenty of dealers which i think are appalling in terms of their social skills but seem to do incredibly <laughs> well so what do i know <laughs> <laughs> so you have a really interesting story of how you kind of made your way into the art world in the first place because you did not follow this track of like studying art history then going to get a phd in art history and then kind of moving into the gallery space that way so can you share a little bit of your story about how you found yourself in the art world I think like most things, it was happenstance. It was it was luck. A friend of mine, well, I, I was working in the financial markets, which is where the stockbroker tag comes from. Right. You know, some time ago. But I think I did that for about four years, um, you know, and I've been in the art world for 30 years. So it's a little uh, um, perhaps disproportionate, that reference. But a friend of mine asked me to come across and join him in an art gallery. And I said, well, you know, that's fantastic and i was looking for a way out of the financial markets because it's just dealing with money all day long and your sole objective is to make more money and you know that's a little bit two-dimensional found it a little bit two-dimensional and, and i really wanted to see what else there was and they said come across and join us in this art gallery and i was i'd love to but really i don't have any experience in the art world i don't know anything about the art world and they said no but you really enjoy art and you, and you understand business. So why didn't you come over with us and we can work on it together? So, you know, I thought, well, why not? It seems like a, a great idea. And and really from then, we never looked back. I, I worked together with this friend for about a year or two and they were doing very well. But what they were interested in sort of separated from what I was interested in. So after a year or two, I set up on my own. And originally, we were just selling prints from a first floor office above Pizza Express, or what is now Pizza Express, <laughs> in, uh, in Mayfair. And after, after about five years, we had done sufficiently well to have accumulated enough capital to consider opening our gallery. Well, it was either we pay ourselves a dividend at that point, or we opened a gallery. Um, mm. And... Obviously, we decided to open the gallery, um, and so it so it, it then went on to the next. That was uh, it was something happening every every sort of five years. So um, after five years, we opened the gallery, started working with. Um, this was now where do we start? We started in ninety two, so this is nineteen ninety seven. We opened the gallery. We started working with living artists, representing living artists, and doing exhibitions, and I put together this exhibition of uh, uh, London School, which was Leon Kossoff, Frank Arbach, Francis Bacon, and Lucien Freud. And it was at a time when Lucien Freud was uh, still very much alive. I, I didn't know Lucien at all. But when we opened the 
show, Lucien came into the show and came looking around with, you know, looking at the artworks. And my uh, assistant said to me, Harry, Harry, come upstairs quickly. And I said, well, why? So just come upstairs. <laughs> and there was Lucien. And he said, oh, this is this is wonderful. These drawings are wonderful. And I said, oh, thank you very much. They're, um, you know, they're early. He said, yes, I know. I, I collect, you know, Frank Auerbach drawings, as they were. And I went, oh. And he said, how much is this one? And I went, well, it's whatever it was. And he went, how much is it to me? And I was like, well, um, um, and I gave him a price. And he said, that's very kind. Thank you. I'll take it. And I was, I was amazed, you know, suddenly there was this master, you know, of the, uh, of the arts, this incredible artist in our gallery um, who I'd never met, but uh, obviously had a number of his works on exhibition. And now he was buying a work from me. So as a young dealer, that was an extraordinary moment. And that's, you know, how I was fortunate enough to meet Lucian. And then things sort of evolved from there. So um, in another five years, in 2002, I guess, probably the preeminent gallery, preeminent contemporary gallery, which was um, a gallery called Anthony Doffe, suddenly closed the doors. Anthony decided he was going to retire. He was going out of the contemporary art market as a, as a legend and just closed from one day to the next, the gallery. And I approached um, a director that he had with him called Graham Southern and said, why don't you come and join me? Which he did. And then we approached Anthony and we took over Anthony's old space in 2002. And with Anthony's uh, guidance and help, a number of the artists that he used to represent, which are some of the greatest contemporary artists of our time, very kindly agreed to work with us in the new gallery. So I changed the name of the gallery from what was my name to a name called Haunch of Venison. And in 2002, we opened Haunch of Venison with a mm -hmm. show by Rachel Whiteread, which was, uh, you know, which was a, a hero of mine as, a, again, a young gallerist. And, uh, and it sort of grew from there. Five years later, we, we sold the gallery to Christie's. <laughs> <laughs> which is incredible. I mean, you know, you've talked about this with me, Harry, this kind of every five years, there being a big change in your life. You know, I think there are a lot of people who, especially this is going to air in the new year. It's a time where people are contemplating their own professional life, their professional futures, thinking about their own pivots. I mean, what kind of advice would you have for someone who's at that inflection point that you've been so many times before? Well, I think, I think it's really the idea of the idea of change is a very difficult, it's a very scary moment. I think for everybody, there is that, uh, there's that confidence that you require to take that next step. And that that can put you in a position where you're quite vulnerable and quite uh, uh, sensitive to it. But it's really, I think, just about taking that opportunity. Well, you, know, you know, it's the old cliche, we, you only have one life, you know. Mm. You know, you've got to give it absolutely the best shot of doing everything you can. And if you fail, you fail. And I certainly failed, um, you know, in in my career. But you have to you know, that comes with the territory. You've got to go in with the best possible intentions, with the integrity, and try the hardest you can to make it work. And, you know, give everything to that commitment. I think if you commit to something, a sort of magic happens. If you sort of go in half-heartedly, it increases your likelihood to fail. 
you know, you've got to commit and then things happen, which otherwise would never have happened, you know. So I'd say, you know, I was very fortunate. There were various opportunities that came along, which seemed like natural progressions. And and they worked incredibly well for the gallery and for what we did. And I think if you've got those positions in front of you, then take the step. I love it. What would you say are the best and worst things about your job? The best and the worst things. That's, uh, I think if, well, I, there's a number, I guess there's a number of things here, but I think if you're doing, if you are doing something for yourself and you are the, the leader of that position, that's a very lonely position. I think anybody who's been a CEO or anybody who's run a business or has been an entrepreneur or, or tried to create something, particularly from scratch, um, it is it can be extraordinarily isolating and lonely. And you've, you know, you've got to have that strength to sort of go forward and create those connections with people so that, you know, you can be supported. And there's plenty of people who will if you if you find them and reach out to them. So I think the hardest and the best thing, I guess, I guess probably people on mm. both answers. Yeah. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Short of emailing you like I did and asking to come be your unpaid intern, a lot of people, I think, like to think about, you know, well, what, um, maybe I'm interested in art, maybe I'm interested in the art world. You know, what kind of advice would you have, practical tips for someone who would like to break into the art world besides the fact that they should? Uh, I don't know if you're hiring any more interns at the moment. I don't know that we are. But um, what what else could someone do if they were interested in the art world and they wanted to get more involved? Well, I think there are the traditional routes, which uh, are, are the sort of internships. But it is, I guess, like most things where there's incredible interest, massively competitive. That should never put you off because, again, that tenacity is what, you know, at the end of the day, you may not be as qualified as the person who's uh, applying next to you. But if you're more tenacious and you're more committed and you're more passionate about it, then ultimately I think you're probably going to do better and get the job and you know be involved in a way that uh, others could only dream of. So it really is about um, about that kind of tenacious attitude towards finding yourself a position. These days, there are thousands of great galleries there are, you know, the auction houses have um, have got an incredible footprint with a whole spectrum of different possibilities in which you can become involved, and are always looking for great people. So it's about it's about what you can bring to that party. Remember, you want to be involved; they already are. So, what can you do? that's going to be of benefit to the people you're applying to. You know, it's not just about give me a job, you know, because I'm interested. How can you make something, how can you make a contribution? Think more creatively mm. around it. Think what would they want? Um, and just keep trying, keep on trying. I mean, we were we were very lucky. I had an extraordinary team of people in the galleries that uh, that I was fortunate enough to have. And, um, and, I absolutely could not have done what we did without that team of individuals. And many of them worked with me for um, decades, you know, some straight out of some, in fact, one particular girl who joined us literally came in the first place and her name was Jade. 
during her summer, I think summer holidays, she came and interned with us. And then eventually when she left university, she joined us and then went on and now does um, great things on her own within the art world. So, uh, so you know, there are all sorts of possibilities of, of becoming involved and it's just finding what works for you. But again, tenacity. Like reaching out and saying, come on, let me be your unpaid intern. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is that is yes. that why you said, is that why you said yes to me? Tenacity. No, no. No, we've known each other for a while and you're brilliant. And it was a pleasure to work with you. <laughs> this, is, this is why I had to put that in there. Just get that little plug. Um, Harry, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for your time and for sharing your story and for your message about really throwing yourself into something fully. I think that is really powerful and applicable across fields, that it's very easy to just sort of say, if you put half of yourself into something, then if it doesn't work out, you can think, well, you know, it was never, you know, I didn't, I didn't give it my full effort, but like, why not? Why not just throw your whole self into it? If you fail, you fail with all of you. So I'm very much here for that advice today. Thank you so much, Harry. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to Quit Your Day Job. We are a Zibby Audio production, and we want to send a huge thanks to Zibby Owens, Chelsea Grogan, and the team at Texture Sound for their support. Don't forget to pre-order my What If Year, sign up for my mailing list on aliciafmiranda.com, and find me on Instagram, at aliciafmiranda. It's the best place to find news about my wild upcoming book tour, future podcasts, and of course, memes about Gilmore Girls and coffee. And if you decide to quit your day job, please share that too.